So this is a nightstand, little shelf and table, whatever you call it, that uh, I typically have next to my bed, all right? Typically, there's a reading lamp that I have around, like right here, it sits about yay high, I think I use like a 40 watt, all right? There's usually a mess of books and pamphlets and things because I'm never content to just read one thing that tends to overspill all over the place. And what I like about it is it has this like drawer that I could tuck things away because I'm simultaneously cursed by growing up like, like in a hoarder family, if you will, and having those tendencies, yet simultaneously hating clutter. Do, do you know my pain? Anyone here share that pain? And so I cannot have enough shelf space, drawer space, storage containers, bins, and all the other kind of things to kind of keep my treasures, but keep them safely tucked away. Now, I emptied the drawer of what usually comes with me on, or what I usually have in it by, by my bedside um, to bring this in here today. But typically, if you were to open this, you would find a four-point Bible, four-point font Bible, because it fits in there nicely, and my eyes just can't quite do it anymore. So typically, you'll also find some cell phone chargers, because I'll read at night with the backlit, and of course, I've got a backup battery in there that I can charge it on. And then probably about 150 different styles of, like, pencils and highlighters and pens and post-its and bookmark kind of things. I've got a couple of little flashlights if I'm feeling old school or have a paper copy book that I want to do it. And this is kind of my little space next to my side of the bed at home. I am of the opinion, again, that none of us can have enough of these kinds of things. Ben and I were driving in this morning and I was commenting, wouldn't it be great if they started home construction where every wall was made of drawers and you can just pull them out and tuck things away because we need places, don't we? We need places to put our things. Things that we want, things that we like, things that we want to keep but things that we don't want to trip over endless thing, endlessly, things that we want to tuck away, right? Tuck it away until later, until we're ready for it, until we need it, until we want it, and then at a pretty quick, hopefully easy kind of way, we can go, oh yeah, I keep that there, and when we want it, we can safely take it out and do what we need to do with it and get it out of the way when all is said and done. Back to this a little bit later. Through the weeks of December, we're going to go through the Christmas story together. The Christmas story in the Bible is different than the Christmas story that our culture often tells. For those of you who have been brought up in the Christian community, this may come as a surprise to you, but many people who have not been brought up in the Christian community think that Christmas and the Christmas story is fundamentally about reindeer and snowmen and Santa Claus, and they think it's fundamentally about gift giving and lights and decorations. And I've had repeated conversations with people who are surprised to find that these are not commands or ordinances that you find in the New Testament or what the Christmas story of the Bible is really all about. And if you're here this morning or listening this morning and your perception of the Christmas account is about things like reindeer and snowman and Santa Claus and gift giving and lights and stockings, what we want to do is introduce you to a very different 
narrative. And in the Bible, you will find the Christmas story upon which all of these other cultural trappings have eventually been built upon and and, and in certain instances find their root. And it's the story of the birth of Jesus. It's the story not only of the birth of Jesus, but it's also the story of everyone satelliting around Jesus in his infancy and the way that God's spirit was intimately and intricately playing a role in bringing about God's purposes in this world through Jesus, who the Bible identifies as God's one, only, and holy son. You can find the Christmas story in the Bible in two places, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. It's chapter one in two in both places, which is so nice because it's easy to remember. We are going to go through Luke. Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, particularly the first chapters of the birth narrative of Jesus, we find the Holy Spirit in typical fashion all over the place and yet somewhat behind the scenes, guiding and nudging, protecting and moving, shaping and molding, revealing and clarifying, strengthening and encouraging, convicting and warning. The Christmas story is a story about Jesus to be sure. But if you read closely, it's a story about the Holy Spirit as well. And through these next four Sundays of December, what I'm going to do is highlight the way that the Holy Spirit interacted and worked through a particular character or person that you will find in the Christmas story, or like Luke chapter 1 and 2. And hopefully by looking at how the Holy Spirit worked with them, what the Holy Spirit did in them, we can get a window of how he works and how he calls and how he moves today. And today I want to introduce you to one of the very first people who comes along in the Christmas story. He's Jesus' cousin, just a few months older. His name is John, often known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because of the vocation or work that he took upon himself in adulthood. I want to introduce you to this guy, John the Baptist, today. Now, if you're to look up at art, if you were to watch a movie, shoot, I think even in the video that we showed, like in the, in like the triangle in the middle, when they were highlighting the various scenes, you're always going to see John portrayed in one way. He's like this, this, this like wild-haired, grizzly Adams kind of man, right? Look at anything. Go back to like ancient Byzantine artwork, to kind of modern-day renditions in movies. He's kind of like this guy that's come off the grid out of the wilderness. You know, the Bible will describe him as someone who, who wears, um, you know, camel hair and goat hair and has a leather belt around his waist and he lives out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey. This crazy man with the beard and the hair and I gotta swear there's probably like animals even like nesting and rooting and living in it. You get the image of what we have here today. But let me share with you how the narrative of John the Baptist begins. It starts with his dad, a priest of the tribe of Levi, ministering in the temple, 
before the altar of incense on rotation. And while he's in there offering up the prayers, it says that the angel Gabriel appears to him. And John sees it and he's, he's laid flat. He, he's startled. He's gripped with fear. And look at what the angel has to say. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord. And the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When we think about miraculous birth, so often we think of the virgin birth of Jesus. But Jesus is not the first miraculous birth of the Christmas story. Because Luke will tell you before this that both he and his wife, Elizabeth, were old, well advanced in years. And despite being righteous and blameless and devoted to God, never experienced the blessing from God that they so desired that was children. And I try to imagine what it had to be like for this young couple waiting and hoping and praying that God would bless them with a boy or a girl. And after their marriage, the months turning into years, the years turning into panic, the panic turning into desperation, the desperation turning into resignation, as try as they might and pray as they might, No child was going to be theirs of their own. How long do you pray until you give up? How long do you hope for something until you just let it go? How long do you cry out to God until you just resign yourself to reality as you know it? I think there's something psychologically necessary and even survivalist in that at times. To set yourself up for hope again and again, to pray fervently over and over again and never see it acted upon or delivered is shattering. And I wonder where in Zechariah and Elizabeth's narrative did they finally hit that point of saying, it's not in the cards for us. And here he is, an old man, well advanced in years. His wife, old beyond old as well, at least 40. 
I woke you up. But old. And the hope is gone. The story of Christmas begins with the angel appearing to Zechariah. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You will call him John. He will be a joy. He will be a delight. And many will rejoice because of his birth. And then it comes to this strange highlighted line. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. What an odd thing to say. Would you agree? Of all the descriptions that could be said about this guy, well, he's not going to drink. Of all the levels of importance that we can try to extract from who this John is going to be, why do they take the time to write that? Why does the angel say that? I mean, he gives like 28 words in total, and you spend a quarter of them saying he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, I get the idea that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. But what's this angel getting at here? Because to see, to someone in the Old Testament world, and certainly to someone like Zechariah, a priest immersed in the ways and knowledge of the laws of the Lord, he would know exactly what this angel was talking about. My son is going to be immersed in the Nazarite vow. He will be set apart and consecrated as a Nazarite unto the Lord. What's a Nazarite, you ask? I want to show you today. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. And there embedded in all of those laws and commands and regulations of the ancient people of Israel, it says this. If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, you want to do something special for God, right? You want to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, and then it goes on to lay out what that vow looks like and means. It's four main things. And let me give you a glimpse of it here today. You look, I'll read. It says, He must abstain, abstain from wine and other fermented drink. And he must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the skins or the seeds. You not only have to avoid all wine and fermented drink, you have to avoid anything that even risks the very hint of fermentation. Raisins? 
forget it. Figs, they're out. Dates, no way. Grape juice, don't risk it. Orange juice, uh uh-uh. Don't even peel them and eat the skins or seeds. That is how far you need to distance yourself from the consumption of alcohol if you choose to take this special vow to the Lord. And what does the angel say? He is not to have wine or other fermented drink even from the time he is born and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Your son, John, is going to be a Nazarite. It's kind of an odd way to take a vow to the Lord. Would you agree? I mean, which of us maybe at times hasn't fasted for health reasons, hasn't cut out sugar or maybe even alcohol, drinking a little too much or not wanting the calories? But go with me, if you will, into the ancient world for other reasons behind this. Much like today, wine and fermented drink was the center of social life. How many of you drink socially? Raise your hands. Okay, that's cool. I guess I kind of bobble back and forth on that. I wasn't expecting that, but yeah, me too. And, and, And those of us who do, we face those times that if you don't partake, it's not that you're shunned, it's not that you're removed, but you're just not quite part of what the group is doing. To take the Nazarite vow assumes a certain degree of social separation. More so, wine was often the center of religious life. And so to take the Nazarite vow was to even separate yourself in ways of the general practice from that. But more so, fermentation and alcohol was a way to purify your water. One of the key reasons that alcohol was so pervasive through much of human history is because it killed the bacteria in your water supply. They didn't have treatment plants with gallons of chlorine being dumped in. They didn't have Brita filters that they could change regularly. Through the process of alcohol and fermentation, they could kill the amoebas and the bacteria that lived within. And so by taking this vow, you are even doing something more. You are risking being sick. Number two. You can put it on the screen for me, please. During the entire period of his vow, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation of the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout, uh, yeah, he must let the hair grow long. And what do we see John the Baptist? Hair, always out to here. You got to go wild, man. You got to go crazy. How long have you gone without a haircut? It starts to get unruly at some point, doesn't it? And even if you let your hair grow wrong, long, you don't even get the trim. How long have you gone without shaving? I tried it here a few years ago. It was ridiculous. This scraggly gray mass of just itch that's like attached itself to your face. 
Your hair coming out to here, it makes you stick out. Would you agree? Number three. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. Your mother dies. You can't go and grieve. Your husband dies. You can't go and grieve. Your friends lose a loved one. You can't go near. Think about the emotional burden, but also the ostracization even the alienation that's starting to occur as this one is being systematically separated from all things around. Number four is a series of sacrifices. I know you were waiting for this one. Let me take it through it in depth. Later, when the period of separation is over, he is to present offerings. I listed here a year old male, a lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering together with grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil and water spread with oil. Do you know what's significant with these offerings here? The commands of God in Leviticus lay out specifically the types of offerings you can bring. You don't have to bring them all, but a Nazarite does. Every single offering and on top of that, a few verses later, it will even say this. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he brings these. So this is just getting you started. It's been estimated that that could cost you thousands of dollars. And that's just to begin with. Add to that whatever else you can afford. It's been suggested that some would have to fundraise in order to fulfill this Nazaritic vow to the Lord. And the angel appears to Zechariah and says, your prayer has been heard. You will have a son and his name is John and he is not to touch wine or other fermented drink. No, he is going to be a Nazarite. A Nazir, which just means one who is consecrated, one who is devoted unto God. Now, when the vow is over, it says something interesting. It says, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, 
Where this Nazarite is to come and present his offerings, he is, well, to shave his head. He is to shave his head. After abstaining from wine and other fermented drink, after letting it grow out and long, avoiding contact with the dead, in giving this incredible offering to the Lord, it comes to completion and termination by shaving the head. Now, here's the question I want to ask you today, and I'm going to put it right here on the screen. How far are you willing to go for what God is setting you apart to do? Because what strikes me about this Nazarite vow is it begins, if you read Numbers 6 closely, if you followed with on the screen, with the word if. If a man or woman wants to take this vow, there's no command, there's no obligation, there's no sense of coercion, which begs the question, why would someone want to do this to begin with? Because it doesn't seem easy. It doesn't seem fun. It doesn't seem to make my life better. There is nothing, would you agree, that as we read that vow, that comes, shall we say, naturally, or easily, or even desirably, if you will. It strikes me, why on earth would someone take this vow? speculate, I guess, all kinds of reasons. Because number six doesn't really tell you why. It just assumes some will. I don't know, maybe someone has spent their life praying. Praying so hard and trying to show God so sincerely the depth of what they're asking for and would be willing to do anything to demonstrate it. Maybe. Maybe someone was moved so deeply by what God did in their life. Whether in answered prayer or something else, they came face to face with the reality of, of what God did for them and they were moved to such lengths that they're like, God, I would do anything to show you how grateful and thankful I am. Maybe. Maybe it was someone so racked with guilt and though they gave sin offering after sin offering and guilt offering after guilt offering and knew that they were forgiven, it just didn't feel that way. And they were desperate to do something, to cling on to something, to, to show something, to prove something. If nothing else but for their own conscience. 
Maybe. Or maybe they were simply just taken by God's agenda for them in this world. For God's plans and purposes. And so desperately wanted to be a part. To identify with God, not the culture. With God, not the world. Maybe it came out of a path of struggle. A path of divided interest. A path of split faith and devotion. Any number of reasons may exist. But what's clear from the Bible is this. The Holy Spirit sets people apart. The Holy Spirit set John apart for a special purpose. And the Holy Spirit sets us apart today. What we learn from these stories back then is a window into how God operates today, that God sets you apart for a special purpose as well. But I want to come back to the question, how far are you willing to go for what God is setting you apart to do? Are you willing to risk separation from family and friends? Are you willing to risk sickness by the nature of the vow that was made? Are you willing to sacrifice deeply, pouring out of your resources and wealth? Are you willing to look differently, setting yourself up as one who is odd from those around how far are you willing to go for what God is setting you apart to do? Or to put it another way, can you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I've done it. I am ready to shave my head. And don't hide behind. Well, no one can be good enough for God. No one can do it completely. Yeah, God knows it. But the Nazarites could. And they did. They knew when their vow was completed. They knew when they were obedient to God. They knew what they did, what God was calling them to do. They knew when they fulfilled the command and the decree. No, the problem is not knowledge. The problem is desire and will, isn't it? But the Holy Spirit is one who devotes and sets his people apart. And in that place invites us not only to partner with, but to live unto separation with him. That's what it means to be holy. Back to the shelf. What I've learned from God is that he will let you put him on the shelf or in the drawer or in the container or however else you want to talk about it. 
God does not force. The invitation was based on if. If this is something you want to do. I'm here and waiting. I'm ready. But the question of how that then proceeds will come down to you. In your life, will you take the clippers in hand? Or is God better kept in there? And it's in that place that John the Baptist came, preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, calling a people who put God in the drawer to return to him. Shortly after the Christmas story in Luke chapter 3, you see John now a grown man and he's on the scene. He's out by the Jordan River and he's baptizing and all his long-haired wild man fermented free glory. And you know what he says to them? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves, but I'm a Christian, because I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise Christians out of the ground. John says the ax is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And he said other things like these. The Christmas story is about God setting people apart and God calling people to return. And the way that we live the Christmas story and engage the Holy Spirit who is just as active today is in that exact same question, that exact same place, wrestling with that exact same prophetic word. How far am I willing to go for what God is setting me apart to do? I'll leave that question with you.